We are excited to be beginning a new series today, as you know now, in the book of Exodus, which you will know, I'm sure, has captured the imaginations of people for thousands of years. It is the tale of a dramatic rescue from brutal tyranny. And over the coming weeks, we'll get to know the main actors um, in the drama and the two great nations of Egypt and Israel that they represent. We're going to meet Pharaoh, the ruthless thug, who defies God and who cruelly oppresses his people. And Moses, the reluctant but mighty liberator who leads his people out of slavery to freedom. And you may know already that almost every scene in this great book of Exodus is an unforgettable literary masterpiece. From the vulnerable baby, Moses, being placed in a basket with a lid on it and floated off into the River Nile to escape genocide. To Moses as an adult encountering God in the scorching, hot Sinai desert. At a bush that was on fire but wasn't being consumed. The escalating intensity of the plagues that climax in the agonising cries in every Egyptian home as every firstborn dies on Passover night and the sudden joy of thousands of Jewish families as they hastily escape to freedom. The, The dramatic crossing of the sea in which God's astonished people are brought through the waters and saved and then behind them their enemies are crushed and their wanderings and grumblings in the desert as God provides for them. The awesome thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments being written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. And then Moses smashing them on the floor when he comes down the mountain to see God's people dancing around a golden calf. The big story is essentially very simple, isn't it? Think about this. Exodus begins, as we read with miserable slaves being forced to build storehouses for a callous king. And it ends with them willingly building a house for their awesome God and king. The first chapter is so dark and the last chapter is so full of light as the indescribable glory of God descends on the tabernacle that they build and God himself comes to live in the midst of his beloved people that he's rescued. 
The reason I think that Exodus is such a gripping story is because it is a story of exhilarating freedom for oppressed captives. We love the idea, don't we, of the little guys being set free and the brutal bad guys getting what they deserve. But this movement from slavery to freedom, recounted for us in the book of Exodus, is so much bigger than just itself. What happens in Exodus is actually, it's no exaggeration to say that Exodus lays the foundation for the whole of the rest of the Bible. The patterns in Exodus are everywhere in the Bible. And Exodus sets the tone for everything that follows. The way that God saves and rescues his people in Exodus points us to how God has planned to save a lost world. And Exodus is there to proclaim to us loud and clear that only the God of the Exodus could ever set us free from the slavery of sin and death. So here is what we're going to do. In this series, we've planned to spend the next couple of terms either side of Christmas exploring just part one of Exodus. It's 40 chapters in total. We're going to go up to the middle of chapter 15 in this first part. And that'll take us through, actually we'll finish on Easter Sunday with the amazing song of praise in Exodus chapter 15. But before we get into the narrative next week, what I want to do today is whet your appetite. And um, I want to give you three big picture themes to look out for as we go through the book of Exodus. I think Exodus is meant to show something about our human condition. And I think, secondly, it will help us to know something of the character and nature of God. And then finally, I think Exodus will help us to understand the shape of how God relates to us as human beings. So there's the three things. In, in other words, who are we? Who, what, what is God like and how does God rescue us? That, that's the three big themes that we want to look out for in Exodus. And we'll try and do it today with three simple headings that are a kind of, this, this felt like a good idea in my head. It, 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 it's like a before, during and after. Uh, so we're going to think about what happened before the Exodus. What does the actual Exodus drama teach us about God? And then finally, what does the Exodus story point to beyond itself? Does that make sense? Made sense to me. Hopefully it'll become clear to you. So here's number one. Only three headings. Here's number one. Before Exodus. Uh, the first thing to say, if you keep your finger in the page there in Exodus chapter one, the first thing to say is that Exodus obviously grows out of Genesis. Okay? I, I didn't know this, but in, in fact, in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, the first word of Exodus is the word and and 
I mean, that, that implies straight away that Exodus is the sequel, doesn't it? You have the whole of Genesis, and then Exodus begins with, and the author is basically continuing where Genesis left off. And you can see, as Ian read to us from Genesis chapter 1 there, that Exodus continues the story of a family. This is the family of Jacob, who 400 years earlier had travelled to Egypt as an old man in the time of his son, Joseph. And the author here in Exodus basically assumes that we know this. He, he doesn't give any explanation. He just picks up this. Here, here's what's going to happen to this family. So the drama in Exodus has a prior history. This family, in verse 1, has come from somewhere. And Exodus is about to tell us that they're going somewhere. Something is about to happen to this family. You get that? This is the sequel. So our first question, really, from verse 1 and 2 and 3 here is, what is the significance of this family? Why do they matter? And to answer that, I, I want to go right back today, if, you'll, if you don't mind, to the very beginning of the book of Exodus, book of Genesis, sorry, we're at the beginning of Exodus. And I want to introduce you to this idea of humanity being in a kind of exile. What do I mean by exile? In basic terms, being in exile means being dislodged from your home. There are some of you in our congregation who've experienced exactly this. Being dislodged from your home. Being far away from where your home was and is. That, that's what being in exile means. And here's the thing. The Bible wants us to know that God created humanity to live in harmony with him I, I think it's almost as if creation itself is is almost like the temple within which God dwells with human beings in order to bless their flourishing and their growth they would enjoy him and reflect his glory and his goodness and I think this concept is seen most clearly in the descriptions we have in Genesis of the Garden of Eden. This was mankind's natural home where they would care for each other and they would care for creation and begin to explore creation gladly and safely with God's help and in willing, brilliant adoration of him. And then, catastrophe. Adam and Eve end up banished from this garden home. Tempted by that ancient poisonous serpent to shake their fists at God, humans were separated from the very source of their life and joy and health. I found this picture this week 
that I, that I think for me encapsulates their sad trudge east out of Eden. You see that? The end of Genesis chapter 3 makes clear that there was no way back. And one writer helpfully sums this up. The path of exile through Eden's gates was a path from life to death, from light to darkness, from harmony to dysfunction and strife. From health to sickness. From security to violence. From compassion to inhumanity. From wholeness to brokenness. From peace with God to enmity. From a life of friendship with God to alienation. This biblical idea that we as mankind are in exile is a key feature of what it means for us to be human. The reason that we so often find ourselves as a race, restless, fearful and anxious is because we are outside, wandering, fumbling and longing to be home again. We all live in a world that was meant to be our home with God, but now find that without him, nothing within all creation can ever fully satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. You know, perhaps, that as this exile unfolds in Genesis, good work that had previously been a joy becomes a struggle. Relationships break down too as Cain murders his own brother. And the shadow of death now hangs over humanity's frustration and violence. And perhaps even more importantly, even the goodness of God, I want to say the goodness of God in whose beauty they had sunbathed, even that goodness of God has now become a terrible threat to them. And they can only recoil and hide from God because of their shame and guilt and their fear of God's judgment. I think one of the first questions that Genesis poses for us is, what will humans do in this sorry exile? I want to quickly show you, I hope this is helpful, I want to quickly show you a couple of alternatives that I find so interesting. The first option is that mankind tries to recreate Eden. And in Genesis chapter 4, we get the sense that the further east humans go, the darker it gets. We're told in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain responds by building a city. And you, you can imagine that, can't you? He, he names it after his own son, 
And there's more than a hint that this nomadic wanderer, far from God, in the darkness of exile, is desperately trying to make a home. Deep down, Cain longs for glory, for security, and for something permanent and lasting. And Cain's solution is to throw himself into this project of trying to recover the blessings of Eden, but without God. It's interesting, the rest of Genesis chapter 4 describes the birth of all kinds of things, agriculture, music and the arts, industry. And alongside all of this wonderful innovation, violence simmers and threatens to spiral out of control. Is this not the story of our world? Does that not resonate with us? Restless humanity in exile, groping in the dark, and yet striving to create glory, permanence, meaning, and hope. And it's also fleeting and frustrating. But right at the end of Genesis chapter 4, there is more than a hint of hope. There are others within humanity who seem to recognize the futility of trying to create a life without God. And what do they do? The end of Genesis, uh, of Genesis chapter 4, we're simply told that at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. That, that's a really important phrase, incidentally, in relation to Exodus, because twice in Exodus, God reveals and explains his name. Once in chapter 3, and later in chapter 34. So here we have this idea in Exodus, all humanity finds itself in exile, but it's as if one line is living in denial and throwing all its energy into trying to build a life but without God while the other line somehow senses that if they are going to find a way back to their true home it will have to be God who enables them to do it you get that? two lines one striving and one crying Genesis confronts us with this picture of the futility of human striving and holds out the promise of God's rescue plan. I, so I, that leads us on to another question. The second great question Genesis poses for us is what will God do to bring humans back from exile, to live with him again in harmony and under his blessing? We're given a tantalizing glimpse of God's plan even before this exile when God makes a promise to humans in the Garden of Eden God tells them that one day the ancient serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman in other words someone will be born one day who will conquer the poison 
and overcome the rebellion and rescue the exiles and bring them back to blessing in the glorious presence of God. And I think this too is the story of the world. The serpent who tries to enslave humanity and the seed who will one day set them free. Genesis tells us that the way God begins to fulfill this great promise of a future deliverer is to start a new family within the world. God has planned to bless the world through this family. He calls Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so the answer to our question as to why this family at the beginning of Exodus is so important is because in Genesis, God had promised to reverse the curse of exile and to bless the whole world through this family. This is the brilliant backdrop to the book of Exodus. And isn't it interesting? I, I find it interesting that Pharaoh is portrayed as such a serpent-like king. The one who enslaves God's people. And that God chooses to save them through a baby born to be their saviour. I think part of the reason that God rescues this little family from slavery in Egypt is to show both them and the whole world that only he can save. Only he can reverse humanity's exile and bring people safely back to their true home. Only this God, the God of the Exodus, can bring order out of chaos, life out of death, freedom out of slavery. And what will happen to Jacob's family here in the book of Exodus will ultimately become a brilliant pattern of what needs to happen to humanity as a whole. So that's a little bit of the before. What about the kind of during? Secondly, the point of Exodus. I think all of that theme, bring it, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Can God really do it? Is God really in control? Is he really able to fulfill his promise to bring mankind out of exile and back to himself. And so I, I want to make really clear right at the outset that the book of Exodus, this is the whole point of the book of Exodus. God revealing himself, his character, his nature, his uniqueness and demonstrating through what happens in Exodus for the whole world to see that he alone is the Lord and that he alone can save. So as we read through Exodus, we'll see, we'll discover over and over again that the prime mover in this story 
is not Moses or the Israelites or even the Egyptians, but God. The real hero in the story is God. This is a book all about God. God is the one who hears the cries of his people in their slavery. God is the one who takes pity on them and raises up a deliverer to rescue them. God is the one who reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush as the great I am. It's God who visits the plagues on Egypt. It's God who divides the sea and drowns Pharaoh's army. It's God who provides for his people in the desert. It is God who meets Moses on Mount Sinai. And it's the glory of God that fills the tabernacle by the end. From beginning to end, Exodus is all about God. Now, we, you'll have noticed that we have entitled this series, Who is Like You? I was slightly worried about that because I didn't want anyone to think that it's like, who is like you? It, you, you know that we're talking about God when we say that. Where does that come from? Who is like you? It comes from chapter 15. After these people are brought through the waters of the sea to freedom by God's power, this is what they sing. At the beginning of Exodus, they hardly know God. They're in darkness. They're brutally enslaved. And in fact, we'll see the first two chapters barely mention God until God shows up in chapter 3. But it turns out that actually God has not forgotten them and that the God of the Exodus does have plans for them, not just for them to know who he really is, but for them to worship him and enjoy him. So this is what they sing on the other side of the sea after their salvation. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Who is like you? Oh, I hope the book of Exodus takes us on the same journey. And I hope that the result of this is that we as a church are inspired to lift up our hearts and voices in praise and worship to him, crying out, Oh Lord, who is like you? As we begin that journey today, I, I do find it very striking that Pharaoh is also building. Just like Cain. Here is a powerful king who is also trying to make a name for himself and secure his people and his legacy. But turn with me to the beginning of chapter 5. It's only over the page, so it's not too hard work. Moses goes to Pharaoh at the beginning of chapter 5 for the first time. And he tells Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And look at Pharaoh's response. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go, I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. Like the rest of humanity, Pharaoh too is in dark exile. He does not know the living God. Who is the Lord? I don't know him. Pharaoh wrongly assumes that he is the master of his own destiny and his own nation. He doesn't think that he's answerable to any other power or authority. He believes that he's in charge. These Israelites are now his. And he literally could not care less, could he? About what a God he doesn't even know says. And so begins an arm wrestle. So begin, who's going to win? <laughs> so begins an arm wrestle between Pharaoh and God. And this theme of either knowing or not knowing God becomes the big theme in the book of Exodus. God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into the darkness of exile and slavery. God comes to reveal his own supremacy and glory, power and judgment. He unveils himself here as the one true living God, the maker of heaven and earth, to whom all creation owes both homage and obedience. The salvation of his people here and the punishment of Egypt reveals God to be the judge of all the earth that no other gods can thwart. Let's pause briefly here. And just ask, what, what is it then that God reveals about himself in the book of Exodus? What should we look out for as we go through this book? I want to suggest four very quick things. First of all, based on Exodus growing out of Genesis, I want to suggest to you that we find God here to be a promise-keeping God. This family found themselves here at the beginning of Exodus in great distress, but God has not forgotten his promises to them. It's exactly actually what the end of chapter 2 says. God, he God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So the first thing we see in Exodus is here is a God who is passionately faithful in keeping the promises that he makes. And a second thing that flows from that is that to be able to keep his promises, this God must be the unrivaled Lord. If there was a chance that some of the power could ever hold him back or thwart him, we couldn't know for sure that he could deliver on his promises. But Exodus underlines his 
incomparable and unique greatness. God is the sovereign Lord over all other powers. He is the one who made all things. He's Lord over his creation, as we'll see when we explore the plagues. He's Lord even over brutal kings and their defiant hearts. He's sovereign over their armies without ever suffering a scratch himself. Later on in the Bible, Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Despite Pharaoh's pretensions and despite maybe our pretensions, this God is the Lord over every other power and authority and he has no rival. He is incomparable. Who is like you, O Lord? But a third wonderful truth is that this great God also reveals himself to be supremely good. His mighty acts are not just him showing off like a macho bully. His greatness to frighten us. Rather, here is a God who puts forth all his mighty power to do what? To rescue the people he loves and draw them out of slavery and to inspire their faith and confidence in him. Here's the God who heard their groaning and was moved to act because he's full of compassion. And I think one further thing, there's loads to see, but a fourth thing we see in Exodus is something of God's justice too in his judgments. And the reality is that God humbles those who exalt themselves. God loves justice and he hates oppression and exploitation. And one of the things that we'll see in Exodus is that God deals with Pharaoh with unerring fairness. His judgments are not him losing his temper. They're not a hasty overreaction. They're not based on some bias or prejudice. The Lord is perfectly righteous in all of his judgments. Friends, this is the God of the Exodus. Passionately faithful, incomparably great, merciful and compassionate and perfectly just. He is both mighty and merciful. No one can stop him from loving and rescuing his people and no one can prevent him from justly punishing his enemies. And in the book of Exodus, we will encounter the awesome sovereign Lord who draws his people out so that they will gladly worship him. I pray that as we see and know God better through the book of Exodus, that we'll be stirred to worship him as we ought. Who is like you, O Lord?
Well, thirdly, we said we'd have a little think about beyond Exodus. I've called this the shape of salvation. I, I suggested earlier, didn't I, that the reason Exodus echoes so loudly down the pages of Scripture and human history is because in Exodus, God is not just revealing what he's like, but he's also showing us how he saves. And the Exodus drama, in a way, it's like a prototype. It becomes a pattern. It becomes an unforgettable picture of how God saves his people. I want to suggest to you that Jesus himself knew this. This year, some of you know this, I've been reading the Gospel of Luke in my own devotions. And I, I just finished, actually, recently. And while I was preparing some of this, this struck me. Near the end of Luke's gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus meets two disciples and they're walking along the road and they're kept somehow initially from recognising Jesus. And Jesus asks them what they're talking about and they're like shocked. Do you not know? Do you not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? They're shattered with disappointment after the crucifix of Jesus. It wasn't meant to end like this, but as they walk along, Jesus basically does a Bible study with them as they're walking along. Luke tells us in Luke 24, get this, Luke tells us that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and explained to these two disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. If Jesus began with Moses, he must surely have included the Exodus. It's like later that evening, later that evening, Luke tells us, that this is after they recognised Jesus and they knew it was Jesus, and they said to each other, we're not our hearts burning within us while he talked to them on the road. What a Bible study that must have been. Jesus basically is showing them that the exodus was all about him. And they're absolutely mesmerised. Now, many commentators note, first of all, how exodus sets the pattern for the life of Jesus. Think about this. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a saviour and had to be rescued from a brutal king who was trying to kill baby boys. King Herod. You remember that? Wow. Wow. Jesus' parents took him to Egypt to be safe so that like ancient Israel, who were described actually as the son of God, God could bring him too out of Egypt and back home again. And didn't Jesus also pass through the waters of baptism and then like the Israelites go into the desert, this time for 40 days to be tempted by the same serpent? And when he returned from the wilderness, what did he do? He taught the Sermon on the Mount, mirroring Moses who brought God's law down from Mount Sinai to the people. When you see it, the parallels with Exodus are everywhere. But it is really in his death that Jesus follows the pattern of the Exodus most of all. In, fact, in Luke chapter 9, 
there's the amazing scene of Jesus going up another mountain with three of his friends and being transfigured before them. They saw a glimpse of his true glory. And while this is happening, who should appear to talk with Jesus but Moses and Elijah? And Luke tells us, get this, they were talking with Jesus about his departure. And do you know what the word departure is? It's the Greek word for exodus. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus in the glory on the mountain and they're talking with Jesus about his own exodus. Because the exodus for Jesus was like a through death to resurrection life. Jesus too would be brutalised and soon pass through death and emerge to new life in order to deliver his people from their own slavery to death and sin. This also explains why Jesus had to be crucified exactly at the same time as the Jewish Passover. That comes from Exodus. Jesus was the true lamb. John the Baptist said this, didn't he? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the promised seed that finally crushes the ancient serpent. Exodus shows us all these great salvation themes so much that even when the New Testament tries to explain to us what salvation even is, it regularly uses Exodus-type words. Deliverance, redemption, ransom, rescue, freedom. The New Testament is falling over itself to use Exodus language to describe what God has done for us in Christ. One writer I came across sums up all these connections up by saying, Exodus is not just a story of salvation, but the story of salvation. Israel's deliverance from Egypt anticipated the salvation accomplished once for all in Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to say to you that Exodus is huge. Have you got that yet? <laughs> Exodus is huge. In Israel's slavery, we get a glimpse of our own human plight. The desperate and dark exile of humanity under a far greater tyranny than Pharaoh, the tyranny of sin and death. And we also get to see the incomparable God who goes into battle to rescue his beloved people. And that's how the great story of Exodus points us beyond itself to the greatest of all stories. The faithful, great and good and just God who saves us through the death and resurrection of his own son, the Lord Jesus. As we close, we're, we're done. I, I want to, I don't know why I want to say this, but I want to say this. I want to remind you and challenge you and encourage you that the Christian gospel is so much more than a kind of therapy to help you feel nice. This is a cosmic message. 
of everlasting salvation that is rugged and real. You know, and I know, that life in this world, in exile if you like, can be very, very hard. We're all caught up in that. But this gospel holds out everlasting hope. And it calls us, it calls us to repent and believe in Jesus, to escape the coming judgment. I, I think one, of, one big takeaway for us from Exodus is this. Don't be part of that human line like Cain and like Pharaoh, actually, who live in denial, striving to recreate Eden by building it themselves. Instead, instead, call upon the name of the God of the Exodus, who alone is powerful and willing to save. And as you reflect on what God has done for you, in giving you his son, may you be able, even today, even now, in this moment, be able to cry out, Oh Lord, who is like you? May that be true for every one of us, for his glory and for our good.